Uh, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, uh, you might want to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to read the entire chapter. So only 15 verses, though. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. I'm in a little bit of trouble here because um, at lunchtime we had a bit of a family discussion and the uh, general consensus was that as a family we ought to support France next week. And um, <laughs> I'm not sure what I think about that. So I think probably I shouldn't mention it. So I won't say anything about that tonight. Um, the subject tonight is wisdom. <laughs> Yes, um, there's a great thing on the um, vicar's chair up there, if ever you get up that far, if you're able to sort of approach the Holy of Holies far enough and go through, and you're welcome to, of course, at any point, and try out my seat, which is up there on the left. Um, very comfortable it is too, um, but there are, there are carvings above, and shortly after I was installed a year ago, I, I went and sat there and discovered these carvings and was looking at them, and one of them on, on the left-hand side says Caritas, on the other side it says Sapensia, Caritas of course means love, charity, and Sapensia means wisdom. And I thought, my goodness, what an amazing thing to have as a sort of motto over your life and ministry 
And whatever we do, that we do it with love and wisdom. Aren't they amazing things? And um, tonight as we come to look at wisdom, I, I just encourage us to, 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 to receive the love of God and open ourselves to the wisdom of God. Because ultimately, love and wisdom meet each other in Jesus Christ, don't they? And there was no one so wise as him, no one so full of love. And um, I think as we see and as we look at this passage, we're going to discover that, that perhaps the, the way of Christ is slightly different from what we sometimes think. Um, seeking for wisdom has been really the highest virtue of pretty much every civilization through the ages. Um, the ancient Greeks put wisdom right at the top of their list of virtues to be seeking out. The ancient Near Eastern culture, the Mesopotamian culture, uh, in which the um, Old Testament came to be birthed, the Babylonian cultures, the Egyptian cultures, the Akkadian cultures, all those ancient um, cultures that in many ways uh, forged the, the, the ground in which our, 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 our modern um, societies developed, prized wisdom above everything else. Being wise in life. Now, there, there are many ways of defining wisdom, but there was a general agreement, I think, that being wise was about um, having sound, reasonable judgment for living well. Learning to live well. One person put it like this, reflecting and engaging with the realities of life, living life forged on the anvil of experience. So we're not just talking about knowledge, important as knowledge is, wisdom is knowledge tested by experience. Wisdom is the ability to take what we have received and then put it into practice, live lives that are um, coherent with the framework um, that we believe in. So throughout the different um, cultures and cultural backgrounds in the ancient world, knowledge was the thing that they sought more than anything else. And of course, um, that world is the world, as we've said, in which the Old Testament was born and came to be. The Old Testament is, as you know, a multitude of documents which span thousands of years but which are themselves interactions with their cultures around. And so there are parts of the Old Testament that interact quite directly with Babylonian culture and say, no, this is how we know, because God created the world. Or different areas. Now, there's a whole type of literature in, in the ancient cultures, which is called today wisdom literature. It's a way of trying to sum up and think how we make sense of the world, how we put into practice what we believe, and how um, we learn to live well. And some of that ancient literature we have, uh, we can still read from some of the ancient uh, peoples. But one of the most amazing uh, collections of, those, uh, of that ancient wisdom literature we have right here in our Bibles 
The Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, is a collection of wisdom literature. Short, pithy sayings which, which try and make sense of life. Applied in different contexts. It's about how to live well. Some of the Psalms take us down the same route. There are other um, writings in the Old Testament which are clearly more of the sort of skeptical wisdom literature. And sometimes we find them difficult to, 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 to understand as, 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 as God-fearers and as Christians. Ecclesiastes. Job trying to make sense of the, of the realities of the world, trying to understand and, and, and propose a way, suggest a way to live well, the way of wisdom. The ancient Greeks called it philosophy, love of wisdom. And it spurned a whole science which was never intended to be separate from the way of living and the way of life. And that is where we are in the universe of the Bible. The Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, which originally actually meant skill, technical skill, artistry. And so it's the word used of craftsmen in the Old Testament. They were skillful in what they did. In other words, they were wise. By extension, it's also used in the Old Testament to describe leaders, those who have the ability to lead or administer well. So Joseph is described as one of the wisest leaders in the Egyptian context. And Egypt was one of the strong um, philosophical, in that sense, nations, uh, uh, thinking nations of the ancient world. Others in the Old Testament are, are set apart as, as, as people who lead with wisdom. David, Solomon. The wise sayings of Solomon. Was there anybody so wise as Solomon? 1 Kings 2. The wisdom of Solomon. And so as we look to perhaps the, the most basic of uh, texts in the Old Testament, Proverbs, we see time and again the encouragement for us as people of God to seek wisdom. Proverbs 3.3. 3, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding rather than silver. Proverbs 24, 14, know that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is future hope for you, and that hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 17, 28, this is good for me. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Or the more recent version attributed to Abraham Lincoln, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Well, there's the background, the biblical background, the, the, the ancient world background for wisdom. Now, here's the thing. When we turn to the book of Acts, as we've been looking through over the different weeks, and we've been seeing characteristics of the early church, characteristics which defined this church which was living brought alive by the Spirit of God. There is one place in the book of Acts where four times the word Sophia, wisdom, is used. It's the only place in the whole of the book of Acts where the word wisdom is used, and it is in our passage. Four times. Twice to say Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and 
wisdom. Verse 3 and verse 10 of our passage. And twice then in the speech that Stephen goes on to give in defense of the gospel in front of the Sanhedrin, where on one occasion he, he talks about Joseph, the man of wisdom who was given wisdom in the Egyptian context by God. And on another occasion, occasion he talks about Moses, a man given wisdom by God. Stephen is clearly in that world. Stephen, a man full of the spirit and wisdom. But here's the extraordinary and surprising thing. When we look at this passage, and it goes on into the next chapter, and we spared you that because it's quite a long chapter, chapter 7, but I'll refer to it. The story of Stephen, he doesn't strike us as incredibly wise. If wisdom is learning to be quiet, Stephen doesn't win. If wisdom is about living well, if it's about self-preservation, about self-fulfillment as the ancients believed, Stephen doesn't seem to be a very good candidate. Rather than seeking to persuade with rational argument, Stephen seems deliberately to want to provoke his audience. There are obvious parallels actually between the situation and the trial of Stephen and the trial of Jesus. The text goes out of its way to show those parallels. Stephen is accused falsely. Stephen is the object of opposition and uh, manipulation and defamation. In fact, just like Jesus, Stephen finds himself in front of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. Just a matter of weeks, months, years earlier. And yet if wisdom is about learning from experience, Stephen seems to have learned nothing. Because he doesn't change anything. He deliberately seems to be provoking these people who condemned Jesus. Stephen must have known the danger. He must have been fully aware of what he was doing. He must have known what happened, obviously to Jesus, but what could happen when the Sanhedrin turned against someone. And yet rather than seeking the reasonable thing to do, to cool things down, explain calmly, that's what I would have done, of course. Stephen gives a speech which is absolutely inflammatory. Chapter 7 gives us the speech. If you have time at home, read it. It's really extraordinary. And in this speech, Stephen retells the story of the people. Now, careful, if you've got a whole load of experts, wise experts in front of you, you don't then start telling them what they know. It's not the way to endear yourself to your audience. And yet that's exactly what Stephen does. He tells them their own story. And the point of the way he tells it is to show that at each stage in the history of the people of God, the leaders have been unable to hear God and follow him. They have re rejected God's way. And time and again, Stephen tells the story in order to point out how the people and the leaders of the people rejected and this is how he ends up 
the end of chapter, the end of chapter seven, he says this. Just think about this. This doesn't seem to be very wise. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. Wise or unwise? And the response of the people and of the leaders is absolutely extraordinary. And we, 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 we sort of begin to see... The text says, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I mean, that's like wild dogs. I mean, these are well-to-do religious leaders, and they gnash their teeth at him. But Stephen doesn't get the message. He carries on even more. Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I can see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. These men have been provoked. They're absolutely beside themselves with fury. And that is the end of Stephen. Wise or unwise? Now there is actually at the end of this passage a little cameo portrait of somebody who would have been wise in their eyes. A wise person. Somebody who can think things through, who can take a little bit of distance, who can reflect, who can judge and then make his decision. Well, there is a person who does that in this passage and his name is Saul. Saul follows wisdom in its human terms. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Here's the thing. There is something radically different between human wisdom and the wisdom that comes from God. Stephen had understood something really key. He'd understood that true wisdom is actually not about being reasonable. It's not about being nuanced or thoughtful. It's not about stepping back and evaluating in the cool and detached light of day. True wisdom is about rooting your life in God. True wisdom is about rooting your life in God. And if we look at Stephen's talk, it is actually quite astonishing that the whole thing is about God. Stephen doesn't try and justify himself. It is all about God. From the very start of his talk, he says this, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Then God said, God sent, God promised, God spoke, God said, God was with him. All the way through, the actor 
is God. Why is Stephen being wise here? It's because he was rooted in God. That was where it all began. That for him was what gave, made sense to his life. And of course, he was just drawing on the key element in the Old Testament scriptures which actually sets all biblical wisdom apart from the wisdom of the ancient Near East. And that was this, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It comes in Proverbs, it comes in the Psalms, it comes in Ecclesiastes, it comes in Job. All the books say the same thing. What sets biblical wisdom apart is that it is rooted not in our rational thinking, not in our search for personal fulfillment, not even in trying to live well. It is, it is rooted in the fear of God. And Stephen's secret was this. He feared God. And he was, he was happy to say that. And he was happy to live with the consequences. Because actually his life wasn't the ultimate object of wisdom. Stephen's desire was not at all costs to live well. Stephen's desire was to fear God. And whether his life would be short or long, the horizon for Stephen was bigger. Actually, Stephen had discovered something that even the Old Testament wisdom writers had not. And that is that to fear God is to know and follow a person, Jesus Christ. And that is why Stephen, faced with the same Sanhedrin, the same accusations, the same anger, he did the same thing as Jesus. He didn't flinch. He feared God. Stephen wasn't wanting to be inflammatory. Stephen was simply speaking truth. And it was because it resonated in the hearts of the Sanhedrin that they were so incensed. Jesus chose the Jesus way. And in the New Testament, living by wisdom is living the Jesus way. It's allowing that way to become the defining element in our lives, not our own self-preservation. There's an interesting story of a Romanian pastor called Joseph Tson, who was, um, uh, lived in the communist period, and he ran away from Romania during that period in order to study theology in England. And towards the end of his theological studies, he prepared, um, in, in the 19, beginning of the 1970s, he prepared to return back to Romania, and he was talking about it with his fellow students. And, uh, and they were astonished, and, and as, he, as he outlined all his plans and what he hoped to be able to do and how he hoped to be able to preach in Romania and, and, and speak the word and all that sort of stuff, one of the students asked him, hey, Joseph, what, what chances do you have of successfully implementing your plans? I mean, realistically, you know where you're going back to. 
And Joseph smiled and in his journal, he, he, he writes that he said to himself, now that is really typically Western thinking. Chances of success, he writes, I never thought in those terms. My thinking was not in terms of success, it was in terms of obedience. I knew that the king had said to me, go. And I had to say, yes, sir, and go. And he carries on in his journal. He, he turns around the question and he says, I, I asked God, what would success look like for you, Lord? And the Lord gave him Matthew 10, verse 16, which says this, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. <laughs> and the Lord said to him this, tell me, what chance does a sheep surrounded by wolves have of surviving five minutes, let alone of converting the wolves? Joseph, that is how I send you, totally defenseless and without a reasonable hope of success. If you are willing to go like that, then go. If you're not willing to be in that position, don't leave. You see, wisdom that follows the way of Jesus measures things differently, doesn't it? And that way of Jesus was so radically different from worldly wisdom that it absolutely infuriated the religious leaders amongst whom we count a certain Saul standing there and watching. And I have a feeling that that moment where Saul was watching and the text says he approved the murder of Stephen, I have a feeling that that moment would come back later to haunt Saul. Because Saul, we're told, is then one of the ones who uh, starts in his frenzy of, uh, of, 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 of anger. He starts persecuting the church going from door to door in order to take them and put them in prison. He is the number one persecutor, chapter 8 tells us. But chapter 9 tells us that while he is on the road to Damascus, he's thrown off his horse, loses his sight, hears a voice, sees the Lord in fact, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I think at that moment, Saul was thinking of Stephen. Because Stephen died like Christ. He was following the way of Jesus. As Stephen was being pelted with stones, what did he say? Lord, forgive them. Receive my spirit, Lord. And the text says it beautifully, with that he fell asleep. But for Saul... That must have just come back. That must have just, he, without realizing it, he'd been persecuting Christ because Stephen was on the Christ path. The way of wisdom. And as Paul wrestled, Saul becoming Paul, wrestled with this, with this reality that thinking he was wise, he'd actually gone against the author of life. Saul, who becomes Paul, realized that, that the way of wisdom, which is a reasonable sort of sitting on the fence, understanding of things, is just not the godly way. That his understanding of, of wisdom didn't stand the test. And he realized that true wisdom 
was now about following a persecuted and crucified Messiah. Complete foolishness for an educated Jew that he was. Unimaginable. Now a little bit later, Paul, as he became, writes to one of the churches that, have, that he's founded, and, and it's a church that lived in, an era, in, a, in a context of wisdom-seeking. There was one city, one church that, that longed after wisdom, that was influenced by the, the Greek culture. It was Corinth. They prized wisdom, knowledge, rhetoric, intelligence, speech above everything else. And to them... Paul will write, 1 Corinthians 1, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what we speak, he says, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul follows Stephen as Stephen follows the way of Jesus. And time and time again, Paul exhibits the same wisdom as Stephen. Time and time again, he doesn't seek fulfillment for his own life. He seeks every opportunity to further God's kingdom, whatever the personal cost. Time and again, Paul chooses to present Jesus the king, knowing full well that the message will be rejected and that Paul himself may pay the price. And we know he was, he was stoned and left for dead at least once. Paul. Time and again, Paul insists that the message is not just words, but power. Power to transform lives. And Paul is willing to take risks in order to pray for people to be healed in order to pray for people to come back to life, in order to announce that salvation can come, that evil spirits can be cast out, that lives can be transformed. Because for him, Christ is the wisdom of God and he won't settle for anything less. Time and again, Paul sticks his neck out as he founds and plants churches which are completely countercultural nonsensical. There was nowhere in the ancient world where Jews and Greeks met together in the same place, ate together at the same table, spoke to each other as equals. Nowhere. It was ridiculous. And yet for Paul, this was the wisdom of Christ, that God was doing something new, which breaks down socioeconomic barriers, which breaks down barriers of culture, which breaks down sexual difference which puts everyone together in one family. For Paul, that was the wisdom of God. But for the world, it was complete folly. Not reasonable. Not nuanced. 
Paul followed the path of wisdom, rooted in the fear of God, revealed in the face of Christ. And that is what we see in Stephen. From a human point of view then, here is Stephen. He's terribly unwise. I mean, frankly, in his position, I'd have shut up. But he spoke. His life was cut short. He became the first martyr. It led to a great persecution on the church. Humanly speaking, no wisdom. And yet from a kingdom point of view, it was the door that unlocked access to the world. It was because of persecution that the Jerusalem church went out to the ends of the earth. Something happened because Stephen was faithful, obedient, because he walked the Jesus way. Actually, it was a couple of centuries later that the great church father, Tertullian, said the famous words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is true of Stephen. So here we are, wisdom, wow. We've traveled a long way, haven't we? Um, does that mean we have to throw out our reasonable thinking as we seek today to be wise? Does that mean we shouldn't be seeking to live well? Of course not. The wonderful thing about the Bible is as you look through the Proverbs, you'll see that there's absolutely everywhere reflections on practical living. They wrestled with things. They used their minds. They applied their knowledge. But it was rooted first and foremost in the fear of God. And for us, the fear of God is walking the path of Christ. So I guess the question for us as we finish is, do we want to be wise? I actually think that if we want a fresh touch of God in our personal lives and in the life of our church, if we want a, a new season, if we want a sense of outpouring of God's power so that it won't just be for us, but it will flow out of the doors and affect our nation, our, our, our city, our area, the the relationships we have, our work contexts, if we want to see lives and situations changed, if we want God's resurrection life to impact our society going even as far as challenging unjust structures, if we want God's kingdom to come, it will come through us as we learn to fear God more than we fear man. And that was what Stephen had learned. Seeking a greater goal, a higher goal than self-preservation, self-advancement, church reputation, even church growth, the goal of the kingdom. Which is why when they looked at him, they saw the glory of God, his face shining like an angel. Because that was where he had set his mind and his focus and that was the wisdom that the early church learnt to discover. And through it, the world came alive. Doors were opened. The Spirit was poured out. I long for that. Don't you? 
in our day. Not reasonable religion, but an outpouring of the Spirit and it will come as we submit to the mind and the path of Christ and we learn to live wise, wise lives. So here's the thing. Let's desire that. Let's desire wisdom, friends. Um, Proverbs 2, 4, seek for wisdom like silver. Let's study for it with our minds. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord makes wise the soul. Let's pray for it. James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all and it will be given him. But most of all, let's look to Christ for it. Colossians 2, 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May God give us that wisdom as we look in our daily lives to walk in his path. Amen.